Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Schaefer's Market Mashup. I am on an absolute heater in May. This is now three episodes in three weeks and probably going to take a break next week. So last but not least for this month, we have Michael Oyster, CFA, CAIA, and Chief Investment Officer at Options Solutions. Michael, how are you? I'm well, Patrick. Thank you for having me. A little bit of background here on Michael, and I'll let him dive deeper into it. But Michael worked at Schaefer's from 1994 to 1999, and he's also a Cincinnati person, which is a huge breath of fresh air considering I have all these Chicago guests on, the New York guests. It's it's good to have some Cincinnati representation here. Uh, how is Anderson treating you? Anderson's great. Thank you. My, my kids are happy. I'm happy. Wonderful. Wonderful. So yeah, let's um, let's start from your your Schaefer's days. You you spent five years there. I just had my five year anniversary, uh, back in April, but it was a very different time in in the you know mid to late nineties and compared to now, especially concerning the stock market and options trading. What was Schaefer's like in your time there? What was Bernie like? Do you have any memories? Yeah, it was it was an interesting thing. So I graduated from University of Cincinnati and went to work for Bernie, um, working directly with Price Heedley. I didn't know anything about options. I think I may have had one week of options study as an undergrad and didn't really know anything about options, but I said, hey, I'll give it a shot. And um, I was very fortunate to have been able to spend five years with Bernie. I think uh, not only did I learn a lot about the options market, but I learned a lot about investor psychology, behavioral finance. I mean, nobody was even talking about these kinds of things back then. Bernie was an absolute pioneer. You know, and then recently we had Richard Thaler win the Nobel Prize for behavioral finance work back in 2017. So I wouldn't even call it mainstream today, but it's certainly um, more than it is, more than it was back then. I, I remember Bernie being a voracious reader. This is a man who cannot consume enough information. He is absolutely a machine when it comes to synthesizing information. All that he reads, all of his perspective um, goes into his brain and then it, 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 it churns out these amazing perspectives on, on the markets. Um, and you know, having spent some time, so much time with him learning about behavioral finance, it really helped guide what I did later on in my career. And you know, I've written two different books, both of which have had a, a, at least a, a small focus on behavioral finance, and that's first and foremost attributable to Bernie. I think it's it's truly interesting to think about how he thinks about the world. We haven't even talked about options, right? So um, options are, again, I think perhaps the most important untapped resource available to investors today. The growth in the options business since then has been astronomical. I mean, Back in 1981, when he started the business, very few people were even delving into options. And the evolution of the space since then is truly fascinating to me. I think 2009, from 2009 to, to now, if I remember this correctly, the amount of stock trading volume has almost exactly doubled. But option trading volume has increased by about 175% since then. So it's really becoming more and more mainstream as investors wake up to the reality that the world is not going to be as friendly 
in the future as it has been in the past. We're looking at an environment where today stocks and bonds are both down pretty substantially relative to the end of the year. Um, this is not going to be uh, a short-term, short-lived event, in my opinion. I think we're looking at many years of tepid stock market returns and investors who know how to utilize options, both in terms of, of unlocking additional return and income, but also to hedge against the risk of volatility in the stock market, I think are going to be better off than those who don't. You finished with a flourish there by talking about the hedging because and we'll get into this later, but we are looking at you know some structural declines across the board. It's funny you mentioned him being a voracious reader because did you pick up Humphrey Neal's Art of the Contrarian thinking before or after Bernie? Oh, absolutely after. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that I can attribute to having read and gained perspective for myself, just simply all of the, you know, to me at the time they were very esoteric, and uh, but it was truly interesting and, and different more than anything that I'd ever studied in academia at that point. Yeah, same here. That's the exact same thing with me where I, I picked that up to try to understand his thought process, and especially when it comes to the behavioral finance. Um, it, it, it was really helpful in, in, in trying to articulate his, his overall investing thesis. One of his big things is that, that, that he really was driving from an early stage was the Time Magazine cover fallacy. Do you want to at least... You know, unpack that a little bit because I have a question regarding its its applications in a more digital modern day environment. Okay, yeah, I'd love to hear that. From my perspective and what I gathered from him and and have kept with me over the years is that there's a structural connection between these kinds of behavioral signals that you see out in the world, not necessarily just in the marketplace, but in the world, cab drivers and man on the street kind of stuff. Um, by the time that everyone is talking about it, all of the selling pressure that created the event to begin with has been exhausted. And in the absence of any remaining selling pressure, the purchase of one entity can cause the price to then go back up. So it's really, it's, it's kind of a structural aspect associated with more of a hard to get your arms wrapped around concept in terms of behavioral finance. I and mean, there's not a lot of math that goes with it, right? So you have to use your sense of feel in a lot of ways, but there is a direct linkage between the two because, you know, this Time Magazine cover um, back in November of 87 said the crash in big letters after a wild week on Wall Street, the world is different. And I know Bernie took one look at that and said, really, is it different? I don't know that it necessarily is. And uh, to his credit, he became a, a strong bull at that point, right prior to the next big run up in the stocks, and he's done that throughout his entire career. And I think it's just it's the it's the madness of crowds. It's a good idea to have a perspective and a level head when everybody's you know making their way, you know, a large crowd headed to a small door. That's that's a situation that uh, you know you might want to take the other side on. Mm-hmm. So what's what's your perspective on it? My perspective is back in February, uh, Bernie recommended oh. a, I think it was a Hershey's call, just a straightforward call. And it scored, I think, a 200% profit. 
and in, in in I think maybe uh two months, maybe under a month. I'll I'll have to check that. And then a month later, Jim Cramer wrote some article on on Mad Money on his site about how Hershey's was the the new value pick, and this was this was going to be your solid foundational piece to help offset all of like the tech carnage and everything. And I connected that with like that is the modern day version of the, the Time magazine cover where if you have these caricatures and regardless of how you feel about Jim Cramer, but these if it's on social media, if you're seeing it on places that are not investment sites, that is I think the digital almost millennial version of the Time magazine cover. No question about it. Yeah, the the medium is less important than the result and what led to getting it in that particular medium. Um, the vastness of the distribution, regardless of how it occurs, is simply a function of the fact that whatever buying pressure or selling pressure that led to that being such a big news story has been exhausted by the time it's out in the public for everyone to see. So I, I couldn't agree more with that. Hundred percent. So let's talk some big picture stuff here, uh, as, uh, regarding to directionality, and potential alternatives. We're entering summer months here, where we have two Fed rate hikes coming up. What's out there as far as big picture macro ideas, and and, and where do you think this is going to to take sure. us as we enter in you know fall, and then you know we have 20, the twenty twenty two election, and and yeah. Yeah, so when I left Shapers in 1999, I moved to a firm called Fund Evaluation Group and started to you know, move into the institutional world, which is much longer term, much more big picture, um, 30,000 foot view. That's how I've thought about the world for a long time. And um, at Options Solutions, we employ conservative option strategies for you know ultra high net worth individuals. So we're not trying to shoot the lights out by any means. And we're sort of just you know, picking up a little bit here and there and unlocking a little bit of additional value for our clients. Uh, but they care a lot about where the stock market is going. So really big picture, Patrick. If you think back to 1981, and it's an interesting time to think about that because interest rates have been going up. I have no reason to believe that interest rates will achieve the same levels that they did in the late 70s and early 80s. But the more important thing is when Paul Volcker deliberately threw the U.S. economy into recession in 1981 to stave off inflation. He raised interest rates, the short-term rate up to like 18 or 19%. That's That happened. The more important point is from that point on in the subsequent 40 plus years, the stock market and bond market have both enjoyed what you might call a duration tailwind. Both stocks and bonds benefit from declining interest rates. The benefits of the last 40 years of almost consistent decline in interest rates have supported stock and bond market returns over that period. And there are very few investors alive today who remember what it was like prior to a decline in interest rate environment. The reality of what's happening now is that that tailwind has been removed permanently or at least until interest rates move back up and then they can subsequently move back down. That's many, many years away if it ever happens. So the reality is, is that we're looking at an environment where the stock market return from the index is not 10%, not 12%, certainly, more like 5 to 7%. And in that kind of environment, I think investors really need to look to options 
to unlock additional value and pick up a little bit more return, a little bit more income um, to enhance the returns. Uh, otherwise, they might find it more difficult to meet their goals. I think if you look at, you asked about the Fed, um, the Fed has had great transparency. Forward guidance has been very good. I think the Fed has an incredibly difficult job. I've said before, I, I think, uh, does Jay Powell wake up in the morning, look at himself in the mirror and see Paul Volcker, which is to say, am I going to have to raise interest rates so dramatically to have to stave off inflation? And everything they've said recently in the comments more recently this week has been, they're not backing down from that. They recognize their mandate is to stabilize inflation and they're going to do it. At least all indications are that they plan to do exactly that. So yeah, you're probably looking at a couple more 50 basis point rate hikes and then they're going to be data dependent. So what happens after that is going to be dependent upon what happens with the data that's released. Very much a taking your medicine type of summer where it's not going to feel good coming down, but you're, you're going to feel better in the long run. And I think that's an important perspective because there is a lot of hand-wringing and a lot of pearl-clutching, you know, about this sudden turn lower, Uh, and especially as it relates to the VIX, and that's kind of where I wanted to take it next. Let's see, up 11.6%. At last check, that's snapping a six-day losing streak. It's now back, you know, near 30. I I don't think it's closed below 25 since, since early, early April. Right. It grazed or flirted near 35. So wh- where do we go from here with, with the, the VIX? Yeah, it's really interesting you say that. And the one particular point that you, you mentioned was not having closed below 25 for a period of time. And that's exactly what I'm seeing. Um, long-term average, as you know, for the VIX is right around 19. Right now we're hovering right below 30, been above 30, as high as 36, even higher than that intraday. Um I think what we're seeing is from the beginning of the year, perhaps a move into a higher volatility regime. Um, Historically, since 1990, there have been periods of, call it seven to eight years, where the VIX is elevated, it gyrates, of course, but never really goes below a certain threshold. It remains in a high volatility regime for an extended period of time. And then you'll see it break below that. And it will remain low for an extended period of time where the stock market goes up 1% a day and it just keeps climbing, climbing, climbing with no volatility. And then suddenly that breaks. I think we're in the the midst of a transition into a higher volatility regime, which is really good for somebody like me with what I do. I generally am a seller of options. I'm a a volatility seller and I benefit, my clients benefit from an environment where volatility is elevated. Of course, it's going to go up and go down, um, but generally speaking, I think we're in a higher volatility regime now, and uh, who knows if that will stay. Suddenly, everything could stabilize, and we could get back down into the, you know, the mid-teens on the VIX. Uh, I don't anticipate that, but it's always very possible. Yeah, tying it back to what we were talking earlier about the Fed, I think as long as the Fed is, is continuing to do what it does, that's going to create a lot of sensitivity at least with, with the VIX. So um, unless some dramatic macro event happens that calms markets down, you're going to have this frenetic activity for the time being. I agree. I agree. The other thing that may um, spark us to the upside is if 
a Fed governor or, or Jerome Powell himself comes out and, and makes a comment along the lines of, well, we, we want to make sure that markets are stable or anything that can be seen as um, the preponderance of a Fed put. And I think that's the thing right now is that historically going back to, gosh, 2001 even, whenever the Fed has started to raise interest rates and the markets have destabilized for a short period of time, the Fed will come in and say, well, it's going to be okay. We, you know, we've got your back. Whatever we're going to do, whatever it takes. But you know, let's make sure that we've got stable financial conditions and all of the rest. None of that has come out of any of their mouths. At least, not that I've heard in this particular cycle. I think the Fed is taking their responsibility to stave off higher inflation. They're taking that very seriously, and I think the markets are reacting. And that's, I think, why you're right, Patrick. I think we're seeing continued elevation in volatility pricing because investors just. This is a brave new world for a lot of people. It's a transition into a higher volatility regime. It's a new environment where interest rates are going up and may not come back down for the foreseeable future. And that means that the stock market is going to have you know, the same level of 20% volatility, but maybe not the same upside returns that we've enjoyed in the last few years. Yeah, brave new world for people who sat at home in 2020 during the height of the pandemic and thought, okay, let me click around and buy a couple stocks and everything blossoms and now it's starting to wilt and you have to start to cultivate it a little bit. Right. Yeah. Tying that back to my early days working with Bernie and with Price Heedley, one of the the other things that I took away from that experience was just a, an understanding. Maybe this was helpful as a, as a younger investment professional because I was still pretty malleable at the time. I don't think I was, I don't think I was malleable as I was then, but at the time, you know, I was, I was a sponge and I wanted to learn. And there were a lot of lessons about trading um, and what not to do as a trader and how to avoid common trading mistakes, you know, um, getting emotional about things, making bad decisions when there's a lot of pain. So one of the things uh, that, uh, Richard Thaler and others in the behavioral finance world talk about is this idea of prospect theory. And what prospect theory says is that human beings feel more pain from loss than we do pleasure from gains. So when you're faced with a loss, you're more likely to make a bad decision just to make the pain go away. And I think a lot of the retail investors that have dipped their toe into the markets in the last couple of years are feeling that pain and they, they don't have that same experience that you and I have, which is a recognition of, you know, stick with the fundamentals. If nothing has changed in terms of your thesis, stick with it. Whereas if, you, if you're looking at a loss, boy, it's really painful, particularly if someone doesn't have that, that level of experience. So I think you're right. I think you're seeing a lot of these retail investors, a lot of the meme stock investors really take it on the chin when it's not as easy as they thought it might have been. You perfectly transitioned to a curveball question I was going to throw you. Uh, you, yeah. you mentioned the malleability, you know, at, at your younger age. Did a little lurking on your LinkedIn, and I saw you ran track at UC. Yes, I did. Uh, so, I have a theory that you are more equipped to handle these higher volatility regimes if you have an experience playing a sport at a high level, or if you are some form of athlete. Um, I see so many similarities between an athletic mindset, uh, and especially as you said, you know, tolerating the pain, um, you know, focusing on the fundamentals. Do do you see some connective tissue between that? I've never thought about that, but I do. Um, 
And I would say that there's uh, a difference between the level of intensity in soccer relative to track and field. Track and field is is um, not as continuously intense, I should I would say. Um, but track and field has the the interesting um, characteristic of being an individual sport. Um, I remember as a sprinter being out there, you know, getting in the blocks, um, getting ready to, to run, and there's no one else to rely on. No one's going to come get you. You know, you you are wholly by yourself on an island, and you know, learning to accept that independence of performance is something that I think benefited me as a younger person. Um, but then, you know, you run for hopefully no more than 10 or 11 seconds, and then and you, you sit around for a while. So it doesn't have that same level of intensity. The other thing, too, about team sports, and I agree with you, um, you have to learn, learn to rely on other people. You have to accept that you can only do as well as you can and then rely on other people. But um, to your broader point, you're not going to win every time. No question about it. You, you just can't accept. You can't believe that you're going to win every single time. And you have to be able to accept loss and move on and, and have a short short memory. You know, like a, a, they say about a good pitcher in baseball has a short memory. Um, I think that's that's a healthy way of thinking about investing too. Yeah, to uh, to quote Ted Lasso, it's you be a goldfish, have the memory of a goldfish. <laughs> that's uh, right. I ran track in high school, full disclosure, just to get ready for soccer and basketball season. Sure. I always commended track and field athletes for their ability to compartmentalize and be and, be, and like you said be completely on and firing on all cylinders for a minute, 10 seconds, whatever whatever your length is, and then just completely shutting off. But while still getting your body ready, I, I, I was a basket case. I would be run, you know, pacing, mm-hmm. and I just didn't know what to do with myself. And I think there is a lot of – there's a lot of benefit in having that discipline ingrained in you of this is when I'm on, this is when I'm off, and, and – and, waiting for your opportunity. I know it's a little different in the investing in options landscape, but I do think that there are some similarities. Sure. Yeah. I've never thought about that. That's an interesting perspective. So what, uh, what you ran, were you a hundred meter, 200? 100 and 200. And then I was pretty good in high school and pretty overmatched in a division one college program mm-hmm. uh, to admit. Um, so I switched to pole vaulting for uh, a couple of years and really enjoyed that. Um, Something I always always wanted to do in high school, but never had a chance to do. So cool. it was fun. it was a good experience. Very cool. I also saw you're a Sigma Chi. So I am a Sigma Chi. Yeah, same here. Uh, oh so yeah, Center mm-hmm. College, 2012. Which which where did you go to school? Center College. Oh cool. Okay. Down in uh, down in Kentucky. So I'm going yeah. for my ten year catch up with people then. But uh, no, that's great. So I always like to end these episodes with the full. You know, you having the floor. Tell me what's going on at Options Solutions and in what you got going on. Yeah, for sure. So Options Solutions, we've brought together some of the, the best and brightest names in the options world. Um, Bill Brodsky our, is, the, is our chairman. He's the former CEO of the Chicago Board Options Exchange. His son, Michael, is our CEO. Um, Steve Sears is our president and chief operating officer. He, as you know, writes the, the striking price column in Barron's and has been active in uh, options exchanges over the years. Steve is, but, a, Steve is a friend of the pod. He's been on. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's an absolute joy to work with these people every day. Uh, Bill Spath is the former 
director of product development and research for the CBOE. He's an incredible wealth of knowledge. Just this morning, having a conversation with him about you know what he was doing during the 1987 crash and asking him questions about old concepts like portfolio insurance and things that are foreign to me because I wasn't around then. But um, just it's we we're working really hard to help our clients unlock a little bit more return from equities um, than they otherwise might not have had. And options offers a really good way of doing that. I, I liken what we do a lot to farming or gardening, you know, going in every day and, and kind of, you know, pulling the weeds and moving stuff around a little bit, not taking any big risks, but just uh, incremental return. And then, you know, again, we talked, we haven't talked much about hedging, but, you know, there's an opportunity to hedge against the risk of decline in stocks and in bonds for that matter. Um, so we're talking to clients about those kinds of opportunities as well. And options are just terrific, as you know, from that respect, you can build out just about any kind of risk return profile that you want. And um, I'm excited for the future, the growth of the industry, the growth of our organization, and just uh, being a part of it. So it's, it's really cool. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll include the uh, website link in, in, in the bio, in this episode bio. So be sure to check, check out optionssolutions.com. I like that guarding analogy. I, I hadn't thought of that. And as someone who uh, I only, you know, in my apartment, I just have a little city planner um, that I, I think four feet by four feet. But I like that, you know, the smallest little adjustment or change, you move something here, you, you sunlight can can have some huge returns. Yeah. Um, so I, I like that. I'm going to think about that next time. Okay. I'm, I'm digging around. Sounds so, good. All right, Michael, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, hopefully we can do this again in a couple of months. Um, but yeah, this, this was super illuminating. Great. Thanks, Patrick. I really appreciate it. Say hi to Bernie for me. Yep, will do. Take care. Thank you.